You may be seated. Amen. Good singing this morning. It was a wonderful special. Appreciated each of you singing as well. It's a joy to see people sing. Uh, it gives courage and strength one to another. It's what we will be doing in heaven. I don't know if we'll be doing it every moment in heaven, but we will be singing and praising and glorifying God in heaven. So it's a good thing to do right here on earth. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel chapter number 4. We're continuing in our series, Walking with God and in the Life of Samuel. I must note that next week we do have Brother Ben Farrell, good friend of mine, and his father was a fantastic evangelist and for decades traveled the country preaching the gospel and preaching to churches to encourage and edify them. With his passing several years ago, Brother Tom was supposed to be here March 10th on the Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday night. Ben pastors in North Carolina. And so he's coming to fill his father's spot that he had committed to us. I didn't make him do that, but he said, I'd like to do that. So that's a wonderful blessing next week. And just for you, we do not have early church next week. The early 9 a.m., and most of you don't come to the 9 a.m., but with time change, it's going to be full in here. So the 60 or 70 or so that were at the early service, we're going to be in here together. So uh, just scoot over some, right? That's the old SOS in church. Uh, Come early, come often, uh, and you will find your seat, I'm certain, but that is next Sunday. The Sunday after that, I will be preaching for a church up in Ohio. Our missionary, Don Sixt, uh, is taking that work over in Middletown, Ohio, Grace Baptist Church. He's asked if I would come up and preach on stewardship and missions because of the way that we do our missions program here and the way that we give to the Lord. And so I'm going up there to be an encouragement to that church family. I don't know if I'll be one, but he's asked me to come. And so Jessica and I will be gone. Zach is preaching both of those services on the Sunday morning. And so then after that, we got Palm Sunday. Then after that, we have Easter. And all that to say, we've got Samuel last week, Samuel this week. And I promise, I promise when we get to April, we'll come back to the last two messages in Samuel in this part of the series of Walking with God. Well, let's take our Bibles and look in 1 Samuel chapter number 3. I had you turn to 4, and we will study it today. But I want to back us up and read beginning in chapter number 3 and in verse number 20 down through the first verse in chapter 4. The Bible says, In all Israel, in 1 Samuel 3 and verse 20, from Dan even to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established to be a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again in Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out against the Philistines to battle, and pitched beside Eben-Ezer, and the Philistines pitched in Aphek. Father, help us this morning as we come to the Word of God, as we look again at qualities in the life of Samuel, as we have with all of our characters in this series on walking, we need to see the core elements of his life so that we can grow. He is not just a historical figure or a Bible character written for children's church. He's written for our learning, Paul tells us in Romans 15. And so, Lord, I pray this morning as we come to this man's life that we would again learn from it. Learn obedience. Samuel was obedient. This morning, Lord, we're going to see a tragic story of disobedience in light of his own personal obedience. Help us to see who they are. Help us to see who He was, so that we might be the Christians, the followers of Christ that we ought to be. Bless us in this hour, we ask in Jesus' name. 
Amen. God's requirement for our walk with Him is obedience. To obey, Samuel told King Saul, is better than sacrifice. And obedience comes with a longing to obey. That's what we studied last week. There was a longing in the life of his parents that he would be consecrated to God and obedient to God. There was a longing in the life of his pastor priest Eli, even though with his own children he did not exercise this. In the life and in the role of a pastor, he did fulfill this in the life of Samuel, that he would be obedient to God. But ultimately, we noted last week, there was a performance in Samuel himself. He had to choose who he would obey. He had to choose how he would obey And he had to determine in his own heart why he would obey. We now come from a longing for God and join it together with a listening to God. There is a longing, but there is also a listening. I can't just want to do something for Almighty God. I have to understand how I go about doing that thing for God. In chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7 specifically, we find a story that unfolds that takes 21 years to develop. Hopefully we won't take that long in the service this morning, or it may not feel like it. I'm I'm hoping that it'll be quite short for us to get through this material today. But simply to say, there is a pattern of disobedience in Israel and obedience in the life of Samuel. There can be no obedience without having ears to hear, hearts that agree with what God reveals, and hands that ultimately do that activity. Obedience moves from the passive thought in the longing to the action or activity in the listening. You can want for God to use you, But to be used by God, you must actively move into obedience to what His Word says. In our introductory text this morning, Samuel has become the voice of God for Israel. I put at the head of your notes there this truth. In verse 21, it says, The Lord revealed Himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the Word of the Lord. God speaking to his man, giving specific directions to him. And then we come into chapter 4, and it begins with one simple statement, and the word of Samuel came to Israel. This is where we find ourselves this morning. The idea of God's voice, God speaking, God communicating. Our obedience to what God says is important to him. It is here in the story that Samuel begins obeying God. But in contrast to his obedience, as I've noted, we find Israel's disobedience. So we find, as our first point this morning, the walk of Samuel begins here with man's confusion before the Lord. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 are great chapters of the Bible. And you say, what do you mean? They seem like they're disastrous. They're great chapters because they tell us of the disaster that comes when we disobey God. They're warnings to us. They are rife with weak leadership, and weak leadership leads to confusion in God's people. If you don't have good leaders, and Eli for sure was not a good leader of the children of Israel. By the way, if God's people are confused, then what hope is there for the world? If we don't know how to obey God, if we don't know how to take the Word of God and rightly divide it, if we don't know how to take the Bible and do it in our daily lives, or if we choose not to, what hope is there for the secular pagan culture that is all around us? And make no mistake, the culture in America is quickly becoming wholly pagan. 
So what hope is there? The answer is there's not much hope at all. The confusion began in our outlines with letter A, Israel's arrogance. We're going to read a lengthy passage in each of these points from the text so that we understand where they were. The Bible teaches better than any man ever could, and so it's good for us to see what the Bible says. Pick up our reading there in verse 1 again, and we'll go down to verse number 11. The Bible says the word of the Lord came to Samuel, came to, excuse me, word of Samuel came to all Israel. There you go. Now Israel went out against the Philistines to battle and pitched beside Ebenezer. And the Philistines pitched in Aphek, and the Philistines put themselves in array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was smitten before the Philistines. And they slew of the army in the field about 4,000 men. And when the people were coming to the camp, the elders of, Israel in, uh, of elders of Israel said, Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Now let's stop and understand the story. They have fought against the Philistines many times, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and all of them otherites that were in the land when they came into the promised land. But we find they now go out to battle. Be very careful when you read the first verse. It does not say in 1 Samuel 4 and verse 1 that Samuel told them to go out to battle. All it simply says in that first verse is that Samuel was now the voice of God to the people. Nowhere do we find before the word now that Samuel says to them, go do this. What we find is an arrogant group of people who have set their heart and their minds to do something, whether God was going to do it or not. By the way, that's a dangerous place to be. Be careful. You don't want to be in that position. The Bible goes on after their question, and they say, let us, fetch the, uh, let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh among us, it may save us out of the hand of our enemies. What are they saying here? The people are saying here, if we just go get that golden box, that ark of the covenant that's up in Shiloh, in that holiest of holy places inside the tabernacle, if we go and get that and we bring it down here, guess what? God will bless us because we're doing the right thing. The ritual will be right and God will be happy with us. It goes on in verse 4, So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from thence the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, which dwelleth between the cherubims. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. Now we heard about these two fellows back in chapter 2. These were the people that were, two fellows that were taking money as bribes from the people, extorting them, if you will. And they were in adulterous relationships with the women that were at the gate of the tabernacle. These were wicked, wicked people. And these were the people that Israel turned to to save them. Verse 5 goes on and says, And when the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout so that the earth rang again. Man, that was loud. You think ball games get loud watching a football or basketball game. Here the entire camp is in an uproar, a fervor, because God is now with us. By the way, we're going to find out God was not with them at all. And when the Philistines heard, verse 6, the noise of the shout, they said, What meaneth the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews? And they understood that the Ark of the Covenant was coming to the camp, and the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God is coming to the camp. And they said, Woe unto us, for there hath not been such a thing heretofore. Woe unto us, who shall deliver us out of the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods that smote the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Be strong. This is their message to themselves to fight against the Israelites. Quit yourselves like men, O ye Philistines. 
Sounds like Paul talking to the Corinthians, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 16. That ye be not servants unto the Hebrews as they have been to you. Quit yourselves like men and fight. And the Philistines fought, and Israel was smitten, and they fled every man into his tent. And there was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 footmen. The ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were slain. Well, in verses 12, 13, and 14, a messenger runs back to Shiloh, and when he comes into the city... He begins to report. We pick up our reading again in verse 15. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were dim that he could not see. And the man said unto Eli, I am he that came out of the army, and I fled today out of the army. And he said, What is there done, my son? And the messenger answered and said, Israel is fled before the Philistines. And there hath been also a great slaughter among the people. Thy two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark is taken. There's four things that happened to him. Israel was now tucking their tails and running. God's glory had departed. There had been death in the camp, a great slaughter. 30,000 had died. His own boys had died. And God's ark, the ark where he would come and rest, was taken. And verse 18 says, And it came to pass when he made mention of the ark of God, that he, that is Eli, fell from off the seat, backward by the side of the gate, and his neck break and he died, for he was an old man and fat and heavy, the Bible says. He had judged Israel 40 years. Israel's behavior in this chapter reeks of the arrogance of one that thinks they are right with God and has no knowledge that God's presence is nowhere with them. That's what disobedience will do to you. It will rob you of the very presence of God and you won't even know it, believer. It's a dangerous place to be in in our walk with Him. Many today in our modern church assume that what they're doing is right. And so they go about doing whatever they choose, not listening to God, trying to do what they think is right in their own eyes. By the way, that was the life of Israel in the time of the judges. Some today will even go around to places that sound holy and they'll do work that they are sure is blessed. This is who we find in Israel here. Arrogant people that think God is still blessing them. May I say, obedience is not found in busy activity. It's not done by the rituals or the things that you say you're doing for God. It's actually in obedience to God. Obedience is obedience, we might say. It's the doing of it. Now let's get a context of what we're talking about here. Here's a map of where this all takes place. It starts in the city of Shiloh. From Shiloh, it goes to a city called Ebenezer. It literally means the rock is our helper. That's what Ebenezer means. It's going to come up later in a wonderful way. Here, it's in a disastrous way. They go to this city to fight against the Philistines in Aphek. And in this city, in this place, they think God's here to work for us. And God is nowhere there in the midst of them. He's not going to do anything for them. By the way, let's make a couple of notes. There's nothing wrong with attacking the enemies of God. It's a good thing to attack your flesh. The Philistines are always a type of the flesh to us. There's nothing wrong with attacking the enemies of God. 
The Philistines represent that. The problem was, for the Israelites here, they did it without God's holy presence being with them. It is an odd thing indeed. The Philistines assumed that when this golden box came into the camp, their God came with them. And they were rightly afraid of that God. However, the Israelites were not really bringing God into their camp at all. The core problem is that Israel didn't even realize God's glory had departed from them. From the story that we read going on in chapter 4, one of the wives of the two sons of Eli, she is with child and gives birth to that child. And what does she name him? Ichabod. Not Ichabod Crane, but Ichabod. Which means the glory is departed. The glory of God is departed from this place. It was too late, but they knew it was true now. Oh, at the beginning of the story, however, they are in their arrogance, are going out to fight God's battles. You know, I think there's a lot of New Testament churches that often go out and try to fight battles for God that God doesn't even want us fighting. That is not to say we ought not live holy and pure and righteous and true and in a just way. I'm saying God's not called us to go out and fight everyone else. He's called us to obey. Perhaps the worst problem for them is that they did not realize that they needed God's glorious presence or that his presence was absent from them at all. They believed literally that a box would save them. They were no different than the Philistines. Our God Dagon will save us. The Israelites said, oh yeah, well we've got a golden box and let's bring it onto the battlefield. And they were joying in the ritual, but not in the relationship. And that's where problems begin. Their hope was in the Ark of the Covenant, the ceremonial container. Their faith should have been in the Eternal One who rested His glory atop of that Ark, not within that Ark. The Philistines worshipped Dagon. To them, Israel worshipped literally a golden box, and the box had a name, Yahweh, to them. That's all they knew. Oh, in our arrogance, often in our disobedient arrogance, what do we tell the world about the God we serve? Eli's boys were willing to do the people's bidding. Instead of stopping their foolish endeavor, they were willing to take another buck from them. Israel brings the ark, but they could not bring God to the battlefield. He will not be forced to work on our disobedient behalf. Many empty worship services are happening around the world this morning. In churches just like ours, there's empty worship services that are going on. I came to the right box. I dressed in the right way. I'm fellowshipping with the right people. And in our arrogance, we come in Sunday morning after Sunday morning and seat ourselves under sound preaching and we go out no different because we're so arrogant we think we're okay with God. There's a lot of confusion in the world and it begins often in the house of God. People are going to church because it's habit. They are going to church to worship themselves. They go to church to worship their feelings or what they get from going into the building or being with those people. Going to church to worship their passions according to their desires. This is the same arrogance that confused Israel here in 1 Samuel 4. Well, I'm doing all the right things. I even picked a church where the guy yells at me on Sunday morning. I know I'm in the right place.
The Bible has told us in verse 1 that God was speaking through Samuel, and neither God nor Samuel had told them to go out against the Philistines. In very truth, obedience at this moment would have been for them to be still and know that He is God. Let Him work. But instead they said, let's go fight a fight. Let's go take on a battle. Let's go do something that we think is righteous. Oh, the arrogance in that disobedience. It leads to our second one this morning, and that is the Philistines' insolence. Turn over to chapter 5. We'll read all of chapter 5 down to chapter 6 and verse 4. The Bible says, The Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer unto Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And when they of Ashdod arose early on the morrow, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. Doesn't God have a sense of humor in his might? And they took Dagon and set him in his place again. And when they rose early on the morrow morning, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off upon the threshold. Only the stump of Dagon was left to him. Therefore, notice verse 5, this is very interesting, because God was working in His might and power. He literally changed their worship of their false god. Notice verse 5, Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any that come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod unto this day, the writer says. But the hand of the Lord was heavy upon them of Ashdod, and He destroyed them and smote them with emeralds. We'll come back and talk about those in just a moment. Even Ashdod and the coast thereof. And when the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, they said, The ark of the God of Israel shall not abide with us, for his hand is sore upon us and upon Dagon our God. They sent therefore and gathered all the lords of the Philistines unto them and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be carried up about unto Gath. By the way, Gath was a city of giants. That's where Goliath is from. It was a city of stronghold, a city of power, but it was also a city often in contest between Israel and the Philistines. The Bible goes on and says, And they carried, about, carried the ark excuse me, of God of Israel about thither. And it was so that after they had carried it about, the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction. And he smote the men of the city, both small and great, and they had emeralds in their secret parts, places you don't show, you might say. Therefore they sent the ark of God to Ekron. And it came to pass, as the ark of God came to Ekron, that the Ekronites, Ekronites cried out, saying, They have brought about the ark of God to us to slay us and our people. These people finally figured it out. Man, we don't want to die. I don't want emeralds. Don't bring it here. So they sent the, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it go again to its own place that it slay us not and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men that died not were smitten with emeralds, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. And the ark of the Lord, chapter 6 and verse 1, was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, saying, What shall we do to the ark of the Lord? Tell us wherewith we shall send it to his place. And they said, if ye send away the ark of the God of Israel, notice how their religious leaders at least perceived the God of Israel. They said, send it not empty, but in any wise return him a trespass offering. Then, shall, uh, then ye shall be healed, and it shall be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. 
Then said they, what shall, uh, what shall be the trespass offering, which, shall, uh, which we shall return to him? They answered, five golden emeralds and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of Philistines. For one plague was upon you all and on your lords. Here's the point. I'm going to make a pretty basic statement, and some of you will get it, and some of you won't, and that's okay. Fighting God will always lead to hemorrhoids. Spiritually. You always have tumors on your body. There will always always be marks, and there will be lesions, malignant, not benign, that will spread throughout your body. That's what the word emerald means. It literally, in the translation, is hemorrhoid, tumor. The word insolence I've chosen because it means rude and disrespectful behavior. This is what happens. On the map, we can see that the ark goes from the Philist- or to the Philistine capital, from where it was in Aphek and in Ebenezer. Twice the Philistines take the ark before their false god Dagon. Twice God topples the statue. So they ship it off towards its original home in Shiloh by way of Gath, the future home of Goliath. After the tumors and the plagues and the mice and the others wreak havoc on the giants of Gath, they send it on to Ekron, that is, again, on the road back to where it belonged in originally Shiloh. At last, it is sent out to the city of Beth Shemesh. In verse number 10 of chapter 5, the Ekronites are terrified because of what the ark and its God have done to Ashdod and to Gath and what it will do to them. So they consult their priest to say, how do we make this God happy? And they say, offer a trespass offering. Listen, out of the mouth of babes, out of the mouth of the ungodly, the right response is that a trespass offering did need to be offered, but not by the Philistines. It was by the Israelites. They were the ones in open disobedience and defiance to God. All the way, the Philistines in their wickedness are learning about the God of this ark. Not the ark itself, but the God who was of Israel. The ark was nothing. The God was everything behind it. They offer gold in the shape of the judgments that God has placed upon them. By the way, insolent people that have an encounter with God often have a healthier respect for God than arrogant and ignorant Christians do. We arrogant Christians often think, well, God will just forgive me. I mean, it's no big deal. I'm under grace, you know. You are under grace. But that grace comes with a heavy price from Almighty God. The heathen, the pagans said, hey, listen, we've got to send back an offering and we've got to send back all kinds of things because that God is really mad at us. They have a healthier respect for him than the Israelites did. God needed no help in defeating his enemies, by the way. All he needed was for Israel to obey him, period. But they wouldn't listen. They knew better than him. Warren Wearsby in his commentary on this particular section of 1 Samuel says this. I'll read it and I put it in your notes. He says, God will not reveal his power on behalf of his sinning people. And that is very true in chapter 4. But, Wearsby goes on to say, he will not allow his glory to be mocked or his name to be defiled by a smirking enemy. And that's what we find in chapters 5 and 6. It doesn't matter if you're a believer or a non-believer. Disobedience to God is not blessed, ever. It is always punished. 
this progression of humility or humbling of the Philistines leads the ark back to God's people, and it leads us to our third thought under this first point of confusion. There is the confusion that comes from Israel's arrogance. There is the confusion that comes from the Philistines' insolence. But finally, there is the confusion that comes in Israel's ignorance. If you keep reading in chapter 6 here of 1 Samuel, you find that the ark is sent by two cows. By the way, the two cows have calves. How many of you have animals, sheep, cattle, stuff like that? If you have a calf and you have the mama cow, and we'll call her a kine here because that's what the Bible calls it, and that mama cow is sent off on her way with her calf behind her, which way is the cow going to turn? Back to her baby. In fact, that's what the Philistines understand. Well, if this is really God's working, and if God really wants this ark back, if that's really the way that God is leading, then let's just try a little experiment. Let's take the two cows and put their babies back here in the town of Ekron and set them on the road that leads to Beth Shemesh. Let's see what happens. The Bible tells us that they literally stalk behind it to see where the cows go. The cows actually end up down the road in Beth Shemesh pick up our reading in the Word of God, and we find the Bible says in verse 13, And they of Beth Shemeth were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, and rejoiced to see it. That's a good response. And the cart came into the field of Joshua, a Beth Shemite, and stood there, where there was a great stone. And they clave the wood of the cart, and offered the kind of burnt offering unto the Lord. So far... So good, right response in, the, in the, um, the ark coming back to them. Verse 15, the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the coffer, that is the offering or the box that had those golden emeralds and golden mice in it, wherein the jewels of the gold were and put them on the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices the same day unto the Lord. Verse 16, and when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day. Problem solved, we might say. Where does their ignorance come in, Pastor? Keep reading. It'll come up in verse 19. And these are the golden emeralds which the Philistines returned for a trespass offering unto the Lord, for Ashdod one, for Gaza one, for Ascalon one, for Gath one, for Ekron one. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords. In other words, they were recognizing these Philistines, who they were before this mighty God. Nothing but a little vermin. That's what they told God. Both of the fenced cities and the country villages, even under the great stone of Abel, whereon they set down the ark of the Lord. Which stone remaineth unto this day in the field of Joshua the Beth Shemite? Notice verse 19. And he, God, smote the men of Beth Shemesh. What? Some of you are smart. You've heard me preach for a long time now, 15 years. You just kept reading. You understood what I did. I tricked you. What did they do wrong, pastor? I mean, they took the offerings. They took the cart. They made it. They sacrificed sacrifices. I mean, they didn't do anything wrong. Well, your ignorance is the same as their ignorance if you didn't keep reading. They didn't keep reading to find out what God wanted them to do because they did it wrong. Notice what it says in verse 19. And he smote the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. 
Even he smote the people 50,000 and threescore and ten men, and the people lamented because the Lord had smitten many of the people with a great slaughter. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy or this holy God of ours? And to whom shall he go up, for, to whom shall he go up from us? And they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirjath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have brought again the ark of the Lord. Come ye down and fetch it up to you. We don't want this problem. Oh, they're ignorant. Curiosity may have killed the cat, but it surely killed the men of Beth Shemesh. Here's the map. They go down the road from Ekron to Beth Shemesh is where it ends up. It's just a little country town. It's just a little place where the sheep would be kept. It's not something significant or anything of major value or worth. The men, however, take to themselves the treasures that are in it. The citizens of Beth Shemesh paid dearly for their failure to respect God. It was forbidden for them to touch or to look into the ark. You know, there's a lot of people in the Christian world today who disobey God because they just don't know what the rules are. It was wrong for them to look into that box. No one touched that box. You could go to the story of King David when he moves it with the cart and Uzzah reaches out and touches it, stabilizes it so it doesn't fall under the ground and God immediately strikes him dead. And you say, that's not fair. And the answer is, it's absolutely fair. God cannot still allow you to disobey even in your ignorance. And so the holiness of God is being guarded here. No one touches that. No one looks into that. And so in the Christian world, we have two scenarios here. People disobey because of their arrogance, or they disobey because of their ignorance, but both of them are punished. God says, I cannot have you disobedient before me. The confusion of man leads us to disobedience. Hophni and Phinehas thought they could win victory by trusting in a golden box. When their lives were wicked and God killed them, Eli died because he had not disciplined his children who were dishonoring the Lord. The Philistines died because they treated Jehovah just like another one of their gods. The men of Beth Shemesh died because of their ignorance in presumptuously looking into the ark. It does not pay to disobey God. That's the point. We come to chapter 7, and I've got 10 minutes, and we're good. I promise. We come to Samuel's confidence from the Lord. Look, man has confusion before the Lord. But if you're in communication with the Lord, you've got confidence to obey. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. We might ask ourselves at this point, where's Samuel been? Look what the Bible says in verse number 1 of chapter 7. And the men of Kirjath-Jerim came and fetched up the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab in the hill and sanctified Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. And it came to pass while the ark abode in Kirjath-Jerim that the time was long. For it was 20 years and all the house of the Lord lamented after the Lord. I would say if God's presence was not coming down and His Shekinah glory was not blessing them, if the true worship of God in the holy place in the tabernacle in Shiloh was not happening for 20 years, probably 21 years by now, it would be a pretty depressing place. I would be lamenting too, so would you. Onto the scene comes Samuel. Samuel is obedient to God. 
We ask the question, why didn't Samuel run out and try to rescue the ark? And the answer is because God did not send him to do that. Friend, I don't care how right you think something is. If you're ahead of God, it will never work out because it's not in obedience. Never get ahead of God in his work. Three thoughts in Samuel's confidence that come quickly from this chapter. First, his confidence was in the light of God's word. The illumination that came from knowing God was talking to him and that God was giving him clear instruction. The Bible tells us in verse 3, And Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel, saying, If ye do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the strange gods and Ashtaroth from among you and prepare your hearts unto the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Then the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Ashtaroth and served the Lord only. The only way to obey God is to know what God tells you to obey. What, do I, what am I supposed to do, God? Do this, then do it. Don't be just hearers of the word as James says, but be doers also. My boys obey Jessica and I because they know us. We were gone this week at a pastor's conference down in Florida with my pastor, Bud Calvert, in his retirement. It was a great time, a fellowship with other preachers. But our boys stayed with Nanny and Papaw. And man, when they stay with Nanny and Papaw, it's like living in Australia. There's no rules, it's just right. And my mom and dad go to church here. They're good people. They raised me. They're great people. But there's something that happens to a nanny when she becomes a nanny or a papaw when he becomes a papaw. I don't know what it is. Like this magical power, discipline and order goes out the window. Nate's over there looking at me like, I don't know, dad. I'm not sure if that's how it works. So when Jessica and I get home, we have to remind them gently of what the house rules are. They know what we expect. They know what is allowed and what is not allowed. They know the house rules. We've made all of these things very clear to them. They know how to obey us because as their father, I have made it clear to them. That's what our heavenly father does with us. He tells us in his word. He illuminates for us the choices and the directions that we ought to go. What we find in this chapter, in these chapters, is that Israel doesn't even know God anymore. You can't obey God if you don't know what God says. They've lost to the Philistines. Their supposed leader, Eli, is dead from a heart attack because the ark was gone. All the while, he had not even realized that God himself was gone. 21 years later, Samuel, who has ministered now faithfully, is finally given a message from God, and God gives him what this key to obedience is. It's found in obeying God's word. He says, if ye do return, the choice is yours. If you do return unto the Lord, With all your heart. He then says in verse 3, purpose in your heart. That is what God's word shines into our lives. It shines a longing from last week to listen this week. A longing to obey what we hear from God to do. From the light of God's word, Samuel's confidence is formed second into the lesson for God's will. We keep reading in verse 5, Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray for you unto the Lord. And they gathered together to Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. Boy, you want to be obedient? Recognize your disobedience and forsake it. And Samuel judged the children of Israel in Mizpah. 
And when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel were gathered together in Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the children of Israel said to Samuel, Cease not to cry unto the Lord our God for us. Boy, aren't you glad they said that? They figured out how the will of God works in their lives. It's not in some magic ritual. It's not in some lifeless box, as golden and ornate as it may be. It wasn't in some dead religious worship. It was in the relationship God had with them. Cry unto the Lord for us, they say. Please, we can't do this. We're in trouble. Verse 9, so Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it for a burnt offering, holy unto the Lord. And Samuel cried unto the Lord for Israel, and the Lord heard him. We find in this event a lesson for us. First, Samuel poured out water before the Lord as a symbol of repentance, complete yielding. As water would fall based upon the gravity to the ground and go where it would be taken, we in our lives must yield wholly to Him if we're going to obey Him. Their hearts poured out in sorrow for their sins and poured out in yieldedness to His leading. The second thing we find is that He offered burnt offering to indicate their whole dedication. We're completely in on obeying you. We don't care where the box is. We care where God is. And I don't mean to disparage the ark. Please understand that this morning. My point is to say that represented a religious ritual. It didn't represent their walk with God, their actual relationship and obedience. The third thing he does is he prays. The nation prays for God's protection. Samuel prays for God's direction and protection. God gave Israel a great victory. One commentator says this. In the comparison between Samuel and Samson, two judges of Israel, he says, What a day that was! Samuel accomplished with one prayer a victory that Samson could not win during the entirety of his judgeship. Big, strong Samson could not overthrow the Philistines. But Samuel, if you keep reading, it says Samuel's prayer and their victory kept the Philistines away all the way until David's day in defeating them. God's will is good for us. God wants to work on our behalf. I put in your notes, if you will sanctify yourself before God and determine to hear His word and obey it, then your enemies, spiritual or physical, will never have ultimate victory over you because of your obedience to Him. That is the lesson in God's will. It leads us finally to our life in God's way. Samuel's confidence was from the light of God's word and the lesson for God's will, which for him and for us establishes our life and living in the way of God, in God's actual way. If you were to read on in verses 10 through 17, you will see that God does a wonderful work for them. In fact, Samuel takes a stone in verse number 12 and sets it between Mezpah and Shen and called the name of it Ebenezer. He did that on purpose because the first time at Ebenezer, they went arrogantly and ignorantly without God. This time, they were going humbly with God, and he says, this is the rock that will help you. That's the way to live. Within the shadow of that rock, God himself. Why do you think the psalmist, David, who would later be anointed by this Samuel, so often wrote of the rock that God was? It's because of victories like this. Samuel took the stone and he set it in Mizpah. He called the stone Ebenezer. Here the stone had significance. The city's name was hollow, but the stone's name was hallowed. It was important. It had meaning. 
So in closing this morning, consider your walk with God as we do in each of these messages. Our walk with God must be one of obedience to Him. Many so-called sacred gatherings today are filled with arrogant people who think they are obeying God by merely showing up to church on Sunday morning. That just isn't so. You're no different than the Israelites taking the ark out and thinking that will help you. Coming to church, even our church, won't help you. That's not obedience to God. It is obedient to be here this morning, but that isn't the whole of an obedient life. The secular world, as we saw, has no care or regard for God. They may giving a passing interest at Christmas and Easter, but their lives are lived in insolent revolt against Him. Why? Because often they see the arrogance and ignorance of Christians. Your life and obedience to God matters. It gives testimony to who your God is. Far too many saints find themselves like the poor fellows at Beth Shemesh. Ooh, goodies. I like coming to church. I like getting goodies. I like getting my, my ears itched a couple times. Wow, I, I like what you said there, Pastor. I like that one. Today, not so much. But last week, that was a really good one. You got my wife good. <laughs> the ladies are more holy than us guys. They never say that to me. You got my husband good. We're fascinated by the cool things about God. But we don't actually respect His holiness or His righteousness. We're ignorant of His very character. And so we're ignorant in our own conduct. What is required is that we listen to God. Listening involves the light of God's Word shining into us, teaching us the lesson of God's will, obedience from the heart with a true longing for Him so that we might live our lives in a perfect way or His perfect way every day. That's obedience. There's a longing and there's a listening. Father, help us now as we...